As you turn to first, uh, excuse me, Song of Solomon chapter 3, I'm going to admit to you I'm terribly nervous this morning about the sermon topic. And when the children dismissed for Children's Church, uh, Sherry Michelle and I almost went with them, um, but I was told I couldn't leave. Uh, in any case, I, the reason I, there are many reasons uh, to be a little anxious about this this morning, uh, but I, I won't get into all of that. But what I will say is um, I will not intentionally uh, use any humor about sexual intimacy this morning. I've not planned on any. If humor comes out, it's entirely accidental on that point, okay? And it's probably more your fault than mine. But anyway, also, I will um, uh, just say to you, um, there, I won't use a lot of qualifiers this morning, and I will speak in a lot of generalities, because the topic is so complex, I would spend all of my time saying, uh, well, I want to be delicate here, and I will have to preface nearly every statement with that statement. So let me just say, I, I want to be delicate. Now, that's the last time I'll say that, okay? Otherwise, I'll just barrel through the subject. Uh, the other uh, item about generalities, there are some exceptions to what I'm saying today, but they are exceptions. So I will not preface every comment with, uh, there are some exceptions to this, but generally, so let me just get that out of the way as well, okay? Um, the uh, first idea I want you to have in mind is that in marriage, sometimes sexual intimacy acts as a thermostat or like a thermostat, sometimes it acts like a thermometer. Well, what is that? Well, a thermostat sets the temperature in a room. A thermometer measures it. In marriage, sexuality and sexual intimacy uh, can act as a thermostat, especially for uh, the man. Uh, because he has a higher level of testosterone, he's usually more of the aggressor, and that can go a long ways to determining his happiness and sense of peace and acceptance and security in the marriage relationship. However, whether or not his wife wants to engage in that uh, will depend upon the quality of the relationship oftentimes. And in that way, it acts as a thermometer for the relationship. It can measure just how well the relationship is uh, between a husband and a wife. If she's not very eager to engage in that, in the marital relationship, then there might be something you need to talk about before getting to uh, that point. Now, what you have in the male is that you have, uh, in the married male, is you have an awful lot, of, a higher level of testosterone, and which makes him a bit more aggressive and interested, and at least first interested in the subject. And so he is pursuing his wife, generally speaking. Uh, but with the female, you've got an awful lot more estrogen there. And I'm generalizing here. I've said that before. I promised I wouldn't say it, but I couldn't help it. But in any case, uh, there is a different way of thinking there, which is very helpful and complementary. But really, she wants to make sure everything else is taken care of before uh, that happens. And, and so uh, if there is, uh, on one hand, the man is there and he, in a sense, confronts the wife with the need, in a pleasant way, hopefully, uh, confronts the wife with the need for them to be engaged in this important act of marriage. But she is there and her sense about it confronts the man with the need to build the relationship. That's why men and women are very complementary with one another, and that's one of a host of reasons we advocate only 
biblical marriage between a man and a woman. Well, Solomon addresses this, and this leads me to give you a real brief primer on the Bible and sex. The first thing I want to mention is something about the lordship of God. God is the Lord of all, including sex. God has a right to tell Americans and all the earth how they're to go about the sexual relationship. He is free to set boundaries. He is the Lord. He is free to give liberties. He is the Lord. God and God alone is the Lord. And it is amazing to me how many people will turn away God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ, because they do not want to submit this area of life to Him. But the Christian person and all the earth, frankly, should submit to God in every area of life, including this one. But second, creation. God created men and women to complement one another in the sexual relationship in marriage. In Genesis 2.24, He said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife and become one flesh. That is reference, a very delicate reference to the sexual relationship. In other words, the anatomy of men and women and the desires on both were God's idea. They were not the result of the fall into sin. Sex is not dirty if it's between a husband and wife married to one another. And so the whole idea of sexuality and marriage was God's idea and it is good. Third, obedience. God commands sex to remain in the boundaries of marriage. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. The Jews considered fornication, sex before marriage, between unmarried partners, as adultery against the future spouse. God is the Lord. He can command what He wants to command, and we're to be obedient to Him. Then fourth, Christ. Jesus affirmed marriage and male and female identities by quoting Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. He said, did he not he make them male and female? And so Jesus affirmed male and female identities, and he affirmed marriage. The debate, make no mistake about it, the debate about who should marry who, and the debate about gender identity is a debate with Jesus Christ, not merely the Christian church. It is a debate also with his father. Now, good news, if you failed and sinned in this area, Jesus Christ died for those who have failed. And uh, misbehaving and sinning sexually is not unforgivable. Just ask King David. Ask many others in the scripture and the Samaritan woman. So that's Christ. Fifth, sin. Humans distort and abuse God's gift of sex. That's all in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Humans have a way of letting fire get out of the fireplace. If the fire is within the fireplace, it can warm a home. If it gets outside the fireplace onto the carpet, it can burn a house down. And this fire has done so many times. Sex can operate the same way. It can warm a relationship. It can test it as well and identify areas of improvement. But if it gets outside the bounds of marriage between a man and woman married to one another, then it is destructive. And humans have a propensity for doing that. And if given too much liberty and license, that's precisely what they'll do. Don't be naive about human nature. Human beings do not drift towards goodness and purity. When left on their own, human beings drift away from it every time. Uh, then, sixth purpose, God gave sex for procreation and mutual pleasure. Procreation, the birth of children. 
mutual pleasure. God gave uh, sex for that for men and women to enjoy. So it's not merely for the birth of children. And that leads us to number seven. Marriages are not to practice celibacy except for physical or spiritual reasons by mutual consent, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So celibacy is not to be part of marriage except by mutual consent, and then only for physical reasons or spiritual reasons, especially, Paul mentioned, for fasting and for prayer. The goal of a married relationship when it comes to sexuality and sexual experiences is found in first, uh, or excuse me, Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1. The chapter division here is disruptive, so I'll read it together. Now, this is delicate, it's poetic, it's Hebrew, it's ancient, but it is beautiful in many ways. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, Blow upon my garden, my body, my intimate parts, that its spices may flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And he says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Very delicate, very classy, very restrained, but it's intense and they are profoundly satisfied with the sexual experience in marriage. Well, the question I want to ask and, ask, uh, ask and answer this morning, and fa- frankly, I may ask and ask it many times, but is this. What does it take to have a strong sex life in marriage? Well, this text enumerates, or excuse me, uh, surfaces several things. One is security. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12 will point to us, uh, point us to security. Uh, this is uh, an image taken from a king's procession, or excuse me, a young man's procession to his bride's home. Now, in our weddings in this day, what we have is that we have the bride walking down the aisle and the groom waiting at the altar. In Jewish weddings, it was the exact opposite. They were not all concerned about what she was wearing, though she was beautiful, lovely, and attractive. They were more concerned about what he was wearing in his processional inn. And so, He would start, and he would come forward, and people would cast their eyes upon him. And that image is picked up in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming in his second coming is much like an ancient Jewish wedding processional. And uh, the man, in that case, would uh, get the attention. Frankly, I didn't want it. Uh, when we got married, I was nervous as a cat at a canine convention and would rather cast my eyes on her. Uh, she was far more attractive and beautiful than me, uh, of course, and uh, has been uh, every day. But that, that's what they did. They placed their attention upon him. So that's what we find in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Now, there's two divisions in this text. Verses 6 through 8 talks about the protection of his procession. And she asked the question, well, who's this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Perfume with myrrh and with frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders. Behold, it's Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold sores, being experts in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. So Solomon makes a procession to her home to begin the marriage, uh, to have the ceremony and uh, the, the wedding night, and he comes with an awful lot of security. He comes with 60 valiant warriors, 
powerful warriors, and so any bandits or robbers that are along the highways would be terribly intimidated and would think twice before they mess with Solomon or with his bride. Well, security like that is profoundly necessary in a marital relationship. Law enforcement has essentially taken the place of these 60 valiant warriors, and in Athens we've got many more than 60, and uh, we greatly appreciate that. But there is more than just uh, physical security that is necessary for a healthy marriage relationship. This includes, I think, having a job to where you can provide for needs before you ever think about marriage and sexual relationships. This means insurance as well. This means uh, also being free from addictions. This would mean as well solid mental and emotional health before you ever think about marriage and before you ever think about sexual intimacy in marriage. These things have got to be taken care of and she is flushed with enthusiasm because Solomon is coming to her even before the marriage starts with great security. But then... She goes on in verses 9 through 11 to praise him for his transport, transportation. In today's terms, she'd look at his car and say, nice ride. And that's what we've got here in verses 9 through 11. Of the wood of Lebanon, the very best, Solomon the king has made himself a palican. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. That's not a king's crown, that's a wedding crown. The day of the gladness of his heart. And so Solomon has provided uh, physical, mental, emotional, financial, security, and decent transportation. Now please don't be embarrassed or wonder why it is I'm having to mention this. Quite frankly, this generation needs to hear that long before you ever consider marriage, you need to have your stuff together. You need to be of sound mental and emotional health. You need to have a job. You need to have insurance. You need to have a variety of other things in order to take care of the marital relationship. If you don't, you will create enormous anxiety, especially in her, and married sexuality will be the last and furthest thing from her mind. You've got to get these things in order and get it right. And so, I, I just uh, to, to extend this, if you're not ready to take care of a baby within nine months, don't think about marriage and sexuality. That's on her mind. It's profoundly important. What's happened in the United States is that we have essentially removed the notion and idea of children from sex and from married sexuality. I don't know why. It's like they're not still coming in the earth. It's not like more children aren't being born, but mentally that's what we've done. We, we have uh, created a sexual environment in the United States to where sex exists only for pleasure. And then we're shocked when someone gets pregnant. Why do we do that? What do you think it's for? That's how it works, you see. And so you have to understand, every time there is a sexual experience, you've got to consider that in 40 weeks, a baby might be delivered into your arms. If you're not ready for that by marriage and security and reliable transportation, don't do it. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs 24, verse 27. First prepare your work in the field, then build your house. You take care of these issues first. 
Well, the good news is when it comes to our walk with Jesus, that's precisely what he's done. He uses the same marriage image in John 14. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again in a wedding processional to my church and receive you unto myself. I know that oftentimes we speak to people that have failed in this area or some other area. There is nothing in Jesus Christ that would hesitate to forgive you and cleanse you from sin today if you were to repent and believe the gospel. He's ready. He's secure. He's got it all prepared. But there's a second element that's profoundly important that comes from the text, and that is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and that is approval. Solomon communicates wild approval of the Shulamite woman here. Now, some of these references might be a little confusing to 21st century ears on first blush, but really they make sense if you think about them and if you can put your mind into an agrarian society because what he does is that he goes to her world and picks out things that are precious and valuable and compares her to them. Now, you've got to be careful how you do this if you're trying to translate this principle into 21st century um, uh, <coughs> lingo and terms. I one time called Michelle, told her she was more wonderful than a yogurt machine. Yeah, I had to try that. I had to try again on that. Now, it made sense to me at the time, okay? Because what comes out of a yogurt machine is just wonderful. Who doesn't like frozen yogurt? Especially when you've got eight different varieties sitting right there. But all she could think about was the stainless steel machine. Well, you might want to be careful. I kind of feel like I'm in a hole, honey. Can you get me out of this? All right, keep going. All right. I tried. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Look what he says. Behold, you are fair, my love. You are fair. Or to translate differently, you're beautiful. Three times here he says she's beautiful. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. So she's veiled and dressed appropriately for the wedding. And, and actually, this is the wedding night. Your hair is like... Now, think about this and appreciate where they are 2,900 years ago. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, I told you to go back 2,900 years and think about this, okay? But if you could look at a hillside and a flock of goats walking along with this beautiful black hair of these particular goats that were very valuable, from which they made carpet and all sorts of other uh, goods and products, th that would look kind of nice. I, I enjoy driving in the country and looking on uh, flocks of goats or sheep up in the mountains, it's, it's kind of a neat picture. In fact, artists paint uh, pictures like that. And, and, and again, he's going to her world, well, this, this country girl, and picking out things that are valuable and beautiful and comparing her to them. And they're going down from Mount Gilead, a very beautiful spot in um, the Holy Land. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. So they're very white. Now, before the days of dental hygiene and dental care, this is very impressive. Uh, and they've come up from a washing. Everyone which bears twins, and none, of, none is barren among them. Your, your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Very red and ruddy. She's, she's got some makeup on. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, 
all shields of mighty men. So apparently she had some jewelry on that reminded him of, um, of shields. And then verse 5, your, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Fawns and gazelles were known for being lovely and gentle and, uh, and tender. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountains of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You were all fair or beautiful, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Uh, he uses that eight times in, in this section of Scripture. Uh, with me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinai and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the lepers. You have ravished my heart. Apparently, he likes this girl. Well, you sure hope so. They're married now. They're on their wedding night. And so he is communicating wild approval. Now, there is so much related to married sexuality uh, concerning body image and clothing choices and appearance, and a lot of it is here in the text, that I want to summarize, I think, some practical thoughts into just three topics and three statements. One, the standard of beauty. The standard of beauty by which you measure your husband or wife is not what you find on the cover of a magazine and certainly not what you find in a pornographic image. Fellas, the standard of beauty by which you measure your wife is your wife. Your wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. Ladies, I'll tell you, when a man's heart's right with God, he really believes that. He just can't get over it. That you said yes to him and that you've tolerated him even when you didn't understand him, which is almost never. And he, um, he, he is full of joy and wonder at just how beautiful you are. And you may be tempted to compare yourself with others and other people and other things, and I, I just have to tell you, please stop doing that. Because you're the most beautiful woman in the world to him. That's the standard of beauty. And fellas, you're the most handsome man in the world to her. That is the standard of beauty, and that is how we measure what's beautiful and what is handsome. Then, not only the standard of beauty, but clothing choices. She is dressed appropriately here in this text. And I want to address that for just a moment by turning your attention a few pages back to Proverbs 15 and verse number 13. Proverbs 15, verse number 13. This is the biblical doctrine of the countenance, your facial appearance. Uh, whether you're smiling or frowning, whether there's a glow on your face or whether you're dour, Verse 13, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. In other words, the condition of your heart shows up on your face. What's going on in your heart will reveal itself on your face. Now, as adults, we're pretty good about faking how we feel for a little while, but we can't fake it long. Children don't. And so when our children were small, the pediatrician told us if they look sick, they probably are because they don't hide how they feel. 
The same is true with your emotional status and your disposition. How you feel in your heart will show up on the appearance of your face. And so I've always told young ladies through the years, and I told my daughters, dress in such a way where the skin that is predominant is above the neck and above. Do not show a lot of skin below it. Now, short sleeves and straps, there are times when that's appropriate. I'm not complaining about that. Don't misunderstand me. But what you want to do with a fella is that you want to make sure that his eyes are directed towards your face. Because here's why. Most men's eyes will go where your skin shows. And they're kind of made that way. And so, you want to be very careful about who you're attracting. Am I communicating here? You need to be very, very careful about who you attract. And the way that you're careful is that you cover your skin as much as is appropriate and direct attention to your face. Now, if your heart is right with the Lord and you've got a good relationship with your dad or you've done the best you can there, and I know that's not always possible, but if you'll do that, you will have a glow on your countenance. You'll have a merry heart. It'll show up on your countenance. And so I've told fellows through the years, Go for the glow. Go for the girl that has got some glow on her face and directs your attention to her face. So that leads me to this. It's probably, it may be in some medical circumstances, this is necessary. But cosmetic surgery is not necessary to make you beautiful. There are some medical circumstances in which that's necessary Go for it. I hope you will. But cosmetic surgery and augmentations, I have a hard time understanding how that's consistent with the missionary people. Another thing, there is no need to show any cleavage in public, none whatsoever. Uh, Ladies from the front or men from the back. No need. Thank you. I think I just came up out of that hole I was in. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little humorous, but you have to understand, ladies are as offended by that as men may be, at least their wives and mothers are with the other. See. So there's really no need to do that. And I want, I'm very worried about this issue. Addiction to pornography is rampant in lots of places. And being a Christian doesn't guarantee there isn't a problem with pornography. And if you show skin in the wrong place, you just might attract someone that's addicted to it, who's got sexual sin and sexual problems or or, or will uh, throughout life. I want you to have the best. And so be very, very careful how you present yourself publicly. The, the, the third item is confidence. <clears throat> Ladies, you are the primary source of confidence on earth with your husband. You need to lay it on thick because the world is tearing him down. And if the world is not, 
then it could be that he's doing that to himself. He's aware that uh, men after 40 gain on average about five pounds a year without doing anything. He's aware of that. It bothers him. He's doing what he can to lose it. Um, he thinks about his health. He starts thinking after age 40, between 65 and 75, and his mind lives there incessantly. Uh, he will be very tempted to tear himself down. And fellas, she is the primary source, human source of confidence in this world. If you two can be right with each other, man, you can face the world and take on anything. And you can get through anything if you have one another. And with this approval, this will enhance the sexual relationship in marriage. You'll find yourself catching your breath and saying, I can't believe she still loves me. Why? Or, I can't believe he still, I mean, this is the one God gave me. I can't believe it. It reminds me of um, the story of Johnny Lingo. And on the islands of uh, Hawaii, it was customary for them to evaluate their daughters and place a price on them for future marriage. It's called a dowry. I don't agree with this, but this is how they did it. They did it by cattle, and an eight-cow gal was top-shelf girl on the Hawaiian Islands a couple hundred years ago. And then it came down from there. And again, I'm, I'm not endorsing this. I, I guess every girl ought to be an eight-cow gal. Amen? I got two daughters. You've got something to give me when you get interested in them. You let me know. All right? I, like, I do like the dowry thing. Yeah, but same price for every girl. All right? But a fellow showed up to the islands from the mainland by the name of Johnny Lingo. Sounds like a gunfighter, doesn't he? Johnny Lingo. But Johnny scoped out this young lady on the island and, and a family. And this family had a couple of daughters. One of them was just extremely popular and very attractive. Uh, the life of every gathering. And essentially boys would line out the hut door for her. But then she had a sister that appeared rather homely, unattractive, wasn't very popular, no one paid much attention to her. And Johnny came to the father of the family and offered him eight cattle for the homely-looking daughter, the younger sister. And the father protested, said, we don't do that here. The oldest one goes first, and she's worth eight cows. This one's one or two. What are you doing? Oh, it's cruel. I know, I know. I don't endorse it. But Johnny insisted, and he gave eight cattle for the youngest, homely-looking daughter. He said, but I, I'll do this on one term. I take her off the island for a year, and only then will I come back. And so the father agreed. They were married in a traditional ceremony, and as soon as it was over, Johnny and his new bride left. And in a year, they came back. And they're leaving a steamship, a large steamship, which couldn't completely get into the harbor. They got into a smaller boat and came up. And they're all waiting 
for Johnny Lingo and this girl, been married a year, to arrive on the shore. And when the father looks out into the boat, and the rest of his family looks out to the boat, there's Johnny Lingo, but he's with another woman. And they get incensed, and they erupt, and they're ready for a powerful confrontation when he gets to shore. But the closer the boat gets, the more clear their vision becomes, and they start recognizing this other beautiful woman. She's not another woman at all. She's the sister that left a year ago. And over the year, what's happened is that beginning with offering eight cattle, the top price, top dowry, excuse me, for this young lady, he began a process of transformation with his love and approval and faith in her. So over the year, she was transformed into the most beautiful woman on the island the moment she set foot there. Just as beautiful as her oldest sister. Listen to me, sweet people. Give your entire self to love and constantly communicate your approval. Please do not become so distracted with life that you forget to heap your words of approval upon your loved one. Approval. There's a third item here as well, and that's work. Verses 7 and 8, uh, she invites him to go up to the mountains and run around the place and have a good time, and he does. The, the, these mountains, these crevices, places where wild animals dwelt were distant, they were inaccessible, so he works at the relationship. He works at it. The most important or effective thing you can do to enhance the sexual relationship is this. Demote sex in priority and elevate your marriage and the quality of your relationship. Now, I don't want to be so naive as to say that if you do all the other areas of marriage well, that will just naturally fall into place. That's not entirely true, but that will be the trajectory of the relationship. So let me ask you something. How often do you pray for your spouse? How often do you ask questions about what he or she is thinking? How often do you ask them to recount memories? How often did the two of you recount the story of how you fell in love and were married with one another and with your children? How many text messages do you send a day? How many times do you call? How many dates do you take her out on in a month? If she says you need counseling, do you get it? Work at it. And the fourth thing in verses 12 through 15 is purity. She compares herself and her sexual anatomy to a garden. In verse 12, uh, she, uh, or he says, excuse me, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. Now don't freak out over the sister reference. They were tight and close. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And he continues with that, saying how lovely the fact that she's kept herself for me is and compares it then to her world and probably his world as well, having grown up in the palace with royal gardens. Immorality always damages relationships with your spouse, even if you're not married. Sexual experiences before marriage do come back to damage the future marriage relationship. By God's grace, you can get through it, but it adds another issue you've got to work on. 
the only way that sex can flourish within the marriage covenant is by purity before and after marriage. And again, if you've messed up, God can, by His grace, help with that and strengthen you, but you're going to have to work at it, and you've got another issue to deal with. And that leads me to this. Once you get married, fellas, you lose all your friends that are girls. They are no longer your best friend. Knock that off. You don't text them. You don't go out with them. You don't have lunch alone with them. If you're going to relate to them, you do it through your wife, and your wife and she become really good friends, and you're never together with old friends that are girls or old girlfriends unless your wife is around. Ladies, the same is true for you. I am very, very nervous about married people who've constantly got people of the opposite sex around them. One fellow complained, man, they just can't stay away from me. I think that there are some who send signals to others. There's a disposition, a body, uh, a body posture, and some other factors that go into that. Whenever you're married, listen to me carefully, fellas, the number one gal in your life is your wife, not another girl, not even your mom or your sister. And the same is true for you, ladies. The number one human being in your life is your husband. Not another fella, not your dad, not your mother either. Oh, you stay close, but number one is that spouse. You protect the integrity of it all. So I've really not said anything here that requires a medical degree and a residency in brain surgery. None of this is complicated. Work at your marriage. Stay pure. Appreciate one another. Build family security. It's very easy to see Jesus in all of this and how committed He is to our walk with Him and how much He loves us. And this morning, He invites you to become His own disciple and follower, to trust Him as Master and Lord. He is entirely pure. You've never known anyone as pure as Jesus. And so His love is entirely pure. He works at the relationship. He pursues you and does not give up on it for all of eternity. He promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He communicates His approval. Well, I've sinned. How can He do that? He took your place so that you could stand in His favor. And that's what He does. It makes you faultless and blameless the moment you receive Christ as Savior. You'll struggle for the balance of your life. We know that. But He counts you as if you've already achieved holiness and purity before Him long before you ever do. This is what Jesus does, and th these reasons and a million more are why you should hurry and turn to Him today. Would you stand with me real quickly and let's talk to God about it. Lord, we thank You for the good news of the Word. We praise You for all Your precious and great promises. We thank You that the Lord Jesus has manifested Himself powerfully and strongly amongst us. And we pray, O oh God, that You would strengthen us in our walk with Him, and that today somebody might begin that journey today. Lord, we've got married couples here and those who anticipate and look forward to marriage, and we want to pray that they will take to heart the counsel of Your Word. We pray they will trust you, that they will walk in all wisdom, 
and that they will know you powerfully so that when that day comes, O oh God, their walk with one another, their relationship with you and in marriage will be much like a life and existence in the most beautiful garden in all the earth. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our staff are going to be here. As we sing together, we invite you to...